Hello and welcome to the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. In this episode, we'll be discussing a series appearing on our December issue, discussing the emergence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in sub-Saharan Africa and the challenges it presents. The first paper of the series outlines the epidemiology, risk factors, social determinants of health and current management of NAFLD in sub-Saharan Africa. The second paper of the series describes current issues and challenges in the management of the disease, as well as identifying research priorities. I'm joined today by Professor Wendy Spearman, corresponding author on both papers. Professor Spearman is head of the Division of Hepatology at the University of Cape Town and head of the Liver Clinic and Liver Transplant Clinic at Cape Town's Hutuskia Hospital. Professor Spearman, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Hugh. On behalf of my co-authors, we really look forward to actually discussing our two new recent papers on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Great. So um, just to take us right to the very beginning of the story, what do we know about the burden of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in sub-Saharan Africa? So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and I'm going to call this NAFL because it's a bit shorter, really is a leading cause of chronic liver disease globally, and is estimated to affect approximately 25% of the world's population. And I think it's important to know what we mean by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this is really defined as the presence of more than 5% of liver steatosis without causative factors such as alcohol, certain drugs, and also the absence of other liver diseases. And we really have the spectrum of histology from simple fat to non-alcoholic steatopenitis to advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis. And this really, this burden of disease is really considerable. Three to five percent of individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease who develop non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, who about one to two percent developing advanced fibrosis. And I think the important thing to realize, if you have NASH with advanced fibrosis, this can rapidly progress to end-stage liver disease and death and the risk of liver cancer. And another thing that's interesting is that liver cancer in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can actually develop in the absence of cirrhosis. So I think we need to remember that NAFLD not only causes liver disease, but also it can actually promote the progression of other diseases, particularly alcohol-related liver disease, and in sub-Saharan Africa, viral hepatitis, hepatitis B and C. And then we have numerous extrahepatic manifestations of NAFLD, such as cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular, chronic kidney disease. So you can really realize the impact this has in terms of disease and also socioeconomic burden within countries such as sub-Saharan Africa. And although liver-related mortality is increased, cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in these patients with adnafl and advanced fibrosis. So unfortunately, despite the increasing prevalence, associated morbidity and mortality with long-term healthcare costs and consequent economic burdens, nafl is really seldom considered as a complication of the metabolic syndrome. So if we look in sub-Saharan Africa, we've got really evolving economies, increasing urbanization, and we have this transition from infectious disease burden of TB, HIV, malaria, to really increasing burden of non-commutable diseases. And it's estimated that the prevalence is about 13.5% in the general population. But the data is really quite scarce, as I'll show you when we discuss the individual regions, but it ranges from about 9% in Nigeria to 20% in Sudan. So if we think about the really increasing burden of communicable diseases in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly this rising prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes, this is probably a real underestimation, particularly we've got this overlapping challenges of increasing urbanization and food insecurity. And food insecurity is really quite an interesting concept. The WHO and the United Nations General Assembly have recently identified food insecurity as a global health risk promoting metabolic risk. 
And if we look at the component, the metabolic syndrome, this is really core to the development of non-communicable diseases and the development of NAFLD. And so NAFLD really represents the liver component of the metabolic syndrome and is part of a multi-system disease. And so if we look at metabolic syndrome in the sub-Saharan Africa, it actually ranges between 11 and 23%, depending on how you diagnose it. The prevalence of the metabolic syndrome, which is driving NAFLD, is higher in women than in men. It also tends to be greater in semi-urban and urban areas compared to rural areas. And of note, in Southern Africa, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome is the highest. And that really compares well with the higher rates of obesity here that are seen compared to Eastern, Western and Central Sub-Saharan Africa. So if we look really at a meta-analysis which looks at the relationship between food insecurity and metabolic risk factors in sub-Saharan Africa, this really corroborates of a high pool prevalence estimate of key metabolic risk factors amongst food insecure participants, with the most prevalent risk factors being high lipids, hypertension, overweight, obesity, and diabetes. And importantly, the increasing number of metabolic diseases are associated with an increased risk of progressive liver disease due to NAFLD and a reduced survival. So I think what I've shown is really that there's really this interaction between non-communicable diseases, this rising obesity and diabetes prevalence, which has an impact with NAFLD. And unfortunately, NAFLD is really not considered as a liver component of this metabolic syndrome. Okay, so now we understand the burden a little bit better. What do we know about the, uh, the factors that are causing these changes and, and, and having these downstream effects? So, I mean, I think... It's probably important to look at the risk factors and comorbidities which drive NAFLD in sub-Saharan Africa and really look at their, look at their prevalence. Um, and I think that's really important because this is really going to become a primary healthcare problem and needs to be addressed at that level. So I think if we look at obesity in more detail, if we look at the Global Burden of Disease 2017 study, it showed really between 1980 and 2014 that the age standardized body mass index increased in men from 21 to to 23, in women from 21.9 to about 25. And then really concerningly in children, the increasing prevalence of overweight and obesity was really problematic. And this has been driving the adult obesity and adolescent obesity, which really is under-recognized, I think. And then very importantly, if we look at obesity, we look at visceral obesity, so the central obesity, and that's surrogate markets of waist circumference. And this has been shown to be a key risk factor for the complications of metabolic syndrome. So a stronger association with NAFLD than BMI alone and a greater risk for national fibrosis. Looking at diabetes, once again, between 2017 and 2045, Africa is really projected to have the highest relative increase in worldwide in diabetes, increasing from about 16 million in 2017 to as high as 41 million in 2045. So really a significant problem. And we see if we look at the pool prevalence of undiagnosed diabetes amongst adults, it's about 3.8%. And if you look in the different regions in Western, Sub-Saharan Africa, 4.7%, Eastern, 4.4%, Northern, 4.2%, and Southern Sub-Saharan Africa, one46 So we see this variation across the different regions, but overall this rising prevalence of obesity and diabetes. And then dyslipidemia or elevated cholesterol levels are also a leading contributor in terms of cardiovascular disease. And in fact, the overall pool prevalence was about 25% in the general African population. So once again, another thing that we seem to often underestimate this burden of non-communicable diseases within Africa. Once again, hypertension is a problematic 
and chronic kidney disease. And we have this bi-directional effect with NAFLD driving these non-communicable diseases and non-communicable diseases driving the prevalence of metabolic syndrome and NAFLD. So really this sort of circle of interactions that we need to actually address to break cycles of, of burden of disease. Yeah, and, and one of the aspects that your series really discusses is that the burden is not homogenous uh, either between regions or between uh, areas within countries and, and specific settings. For instance, you mentioned the urban versus rural divides. Is, is that accurate? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that that is. So if we look at southern sub-Saharan Africa, here we're looking at NAFLD having an age standardized prevalence of about 11.4%. So it's increased really from 1990 from 3.7 million per million to 8.1 million in 2017. So this rapid rise in terms of NAFLD numbers, once again, that really corresponds with the prevalence of type 2 diabetes, particularly in South Africa where the prevalence has increased from about 4.8% in men to 7.7% in women. And so we see this rising prevalence of type 2 diabetes. And in terms of obesity, it's probably highest in Southern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly in South Africa, where we're looking at prevalence in men of 38.6% and in women as high as 64% being overweight. So a real problem of diabetes and obesity. And then in southern sub-Saharan Africa, we have this added problem of HIV infection and its therapies and the metabolic consequences are potentially additive factors. And that will really drive further problems relating to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So probably of all the regions, southern sub-Saharan Africa leads the pack in terms of burden of disease. But we're seeing this really throughout sub-Saharan Africa. In western sub-Saharan Africa, it's increased from 8.4 million in 1990 to 23 million prevalence now at 8%. And what we're seeing here, increasingly obesity and type 2 diabetes. But importantly, we see this rising in the urban areas rather than predominantly in the rural areas. In central sub-Saharan Africa, the age standardized prevalence is about 7.5%. Obesity here is less prevalent, but we have seen a significant increase in countries like Burundi, rising from 2.6 to 5.4%, and in DR Congo, rising from 44 to 6.7%. And once again, here in Central Africa, Central Sub-Saharan Africa, it is the urban-based individuals with this rising metabolic syndrome, which is driving the problem of NAFLD. Typically here in Central Sub-Saharan Africa, they've actually formally looked at the local traditional diets. We tend to be protective, much more, more vegetarian. And once they move into the urban area, there's increase of calorie-dense diets. Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa, once again, this rise, it's now an age standard prevalence of 7%, rising from about 7 1 per million in 1990 to 18 per million in 2017. And once again, we see here the rise in diabetes, obesity, but definitely sort of urban-based rather than, than rural. So I think what one's seeing, certainly sub, southern sub-Saharan Africa, very high prevalence of diabetes, obesity driving the uh, NAFLD. But we see this increasing urbanization and effects on non-communicable diseases throughout sub-Saharan Africa and something that probably hasn't been addressed adequately. Yeah, and, and you, you certainly, one of the things you touch upon in, in the series as well is the recognition of the NAFLD burden and of the related comorbidities is pretty poor across sub-Saharan Africa. Is that, is that correct as well? I think absolutely. And I think once again, it comes down to the fact that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is really not considered a complication of the metabolic syndrome, despite the increasing prevalence of these comorbidities that I've described. 
And unfortunately, there are really no published national clinical guidelines on NAFLD in sub-Saharan Africa. So we have a number of comprehensive national guidelines, protocols, and treatment algorithms for the management of the non-communicable diseases. Unfortunately, effective implementation of these protocols is lacking. Unfortunately, compounding this is that none of these guidance documents on type 2 diabetes, obesity, dyslipidemia, or hypertension include the burden of fatty liver disease or even mention fatty liver disease that should be considered as part of the complications. So um, I think most primary healthcare doctor will know with type 2 diabetes, you're going to look for the risk of cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, diabetic retinopathy. But really, very few of them will think about looking at that liver, and that's really problematic. And as I've mentioned, this bidirectional effect of the metabolic risk factors, both driving NAFLD and NAFLD driving the severity of the non-communicable diseases. And I think that's really important if we think that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease has associated about an almost 1.5-fold increased risk of incident chronic kidney disease. We know that hypertension is poorly managed in sub-Saharan Africa, so this feeds into one another. And then in terms of diabetes, it's really been clearly shown that NAFLD is associated with two times higher risk of developing diabetes, depending on the severity of NAFLD, at higher risk. But importantly, if you get the diabetes under control, the NAFLD improves as well. So we really need to be addressing this at, at a primary healthcare level. And I think there are a number of ways that we can actually address that. And one of the things is to actually recognise, both from national departments of health and from international aid agencies, the sort of changing healthcare landscape in sub-Saharan Africa, with this high burden of communicable disease now sort of converging with increasing non-communicable diseases. And so one really needs a transition from a system that's focused on infectious diseases to a much more integrated system at all levels of care, but particularly at primary health care. So I think this is something that needs to be addressed, and there are ways that we can, we can actually approach this. Uh, so, so are there any specific mechanisms that you suggest in your series uh, to, to improve this recognition? Yes, so there's been this sort of idea of actually changing the name of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to metabolic dysfunction-associated fatty liver disease. And I think that's going to make a major difference in the understanding of both healthcare workers, in terms of policymakers, and also the general public. And really what we look at with this new proposed definition is that you have evidence of liver steatosis by histology or imaging or biomarkers or scores. And in addition to that, you have one of the following three, so being overweight or obese, presence of type 2 diabetes, evidence of metabolic dysregulation, with at least two metabolic risk factors. And what we're looking at here is a rise in the lipid levels, hypertriglyceridemia, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance. So really looking, specifically identifying what are those metabolic risk factors. So I think the difference here, you're basing this diagnosis on positive diagnostic criteria that are really central to the metabolic syndrome, does not exclude alcohol, and you can coexist with other liver diseases because we know in reality, liver disease, chronic liver disease, tends to be multifactorial. It's really not a single agent. And I think it also avoids the sort of stigmatization that is associated with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I think when we'll be able to bring this to healthcare workers, to the general public and raise the awareness. Um, and I think particularly, I mean, COVID-19 has raised the sort of general awareness and sort of knowledge of healthcare workers around the risk of metabolic risk factors in terms of outcomes for COVID-19 and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and obesity. So I think we're in a setting where we can really sort of leverage on this increased awareness of what the problems are relating to obesity, diabetes, and, and hypercholesterolemia. I think, you know, we need to educate the healthcare workers, general public around multi-system impact of metabolic risk factors. 
And we really need to shift away from the looking away from GIT and hepatologists actually being concentrating their, their, their management of NAFLD to, to primary health care level. And I think what one then needs to be able to do is to recognise which of those individuals are at risk of having advanced disease, cirrhosis and complications, and then having a very clear referral pathway of from primary health care to secondary to tertiary level. And they're, they're really quite simple point of care tests that you can look at, um, which are very well known, the APRI score, the FIB score, the NAFLD activity score. And these are all available on your cell phone. You just plug in the numbers and they are, can have very clear, simple guidelines to decide who actually needs to move up the, the, the level of um, care. And I think importantly, what we've shown is that if you have these high, higher scores, it's quite important to combine this with imaging and ultrasound. But important something that will give you more impact in terms of fibrosis scoring. And here we look at the fibro scan. The fibro scan will be able to give you an actual figure for the fibrosis. Some of it can actually even measure the amount of fat. And I think what's important is that actually can be done by nurses. Uh, community healthcare workers can be trained. It's really quite a simple technique and will enable you to identify those who are more likely to have advanced fibrosis complications and then one can refer them upwards. So I think there are lots of simple things that we can do, but it does depend on this being recognised by departments of health, by policymakers, and also providing funding at primary healthcare level to expand beyond the infectious diseases. Great. I think also one key message that comes out in your series is that you, I mean, you mentioned that the management of non-alcoholic liver disease should be centred on prevention. I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on, on the kind of the policies and strategies that that could involve. Yes, I think that's extremely important. So we all know they're quite sort of sophisticated uh, medications that are becoming available to manage non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But in reality, in sub-Saharan Africa, that's going to be outside the price range of what we, of what we are going to be able to afford. And it really doesn't address the real problem because you're looking at end stage. So what we really want to do is prevent the development. So I think we need to look at lifestyle changes. We need to look at diet. We need to look at weight loss. And I think what has been shown, despite all the other medications, that sustained weight loss has the best benefits in terms of improving the stages of NAFLD in terms of degree of fat, degree of inflammation and fibrosis. And, and really, one's not looking at massive weight loss. It's really just losing 5 to 7% of your, of your weight over a period of time. What you don't want is very rapid weight loss, as this can actually aggravate steatosis and steatohepatitis. But I think we need to actually look at that. And in terms of exercise as well, one needs to actually be sure that one's actually having a regular exercise program with both aerobic and resistance training. And so what we know is that many of our patients being overweight have difficulty doing aerobic exercises. And what one then can actually look at as looking resistance training, and that can be quite easily done at home. And once again, I think we need to sort of look at what we've been doing during COVID-19, during those lockdowns, doing home exercises. We've, we've, we've gotten to that kind of pattern of behavior, and we need to leverage on that. I think Importantly, one needs to look at control of diabetes. Uh, we need to look at control of dyslipidemia. And there's often a concern about the use of statins and potentially being hepatotoxic, but really there's no contraindication to starting statin if it's needed for control of dyslipidemia. So I think we need to go back to the basics, making sure that when actually in terms of diabetes, do we have the ability to actually monitor, do home monitoring of glucose? One tends to forget that this can often be quite expensive. You need access to the strips, you need access to 
of the machines and they need to be calibrated regularly. So I think we need to get back to basics just to look after in terms of diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and then bring in this sort of liver health approach where you're looking at liver as a whole, looking at your non-communicable diseases, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, viral hepatitis. So really have these these programs sort of know your status like we did with HIV. So know your HIV, hepatitis B and C status. So we have a holistic approach to the problems that are developing within sub-Saharan Africa. So just looking ahead to the next few years then, what are going to be the key issues and, and problems that are facing countries in sub-Saharan Africa with respect to NAFLD? I think if if we look at sort of the key challenges, I think what will be the key challenges really will relate to us being able to actually recognise the real burden of disease, both in terms of communicable and non-communicable diseases. We need to recognise that, unfortunately, there's this rising prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And I think one needs to also recognise that Africans tend to be 10 times younger when they present with these non-communicable diseases. So they're going to have a significant impact in terms of socioeconomic factors in in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think if we increase the infrastructure at the primary healthcare level, this must be combined with adequate resources to actually deal with this. You can't just add this added work to to nurses, to primary care healthcare physicians. So one really needs to actually look at how we're going to improve the infrastructure, support this from national departments of health. And I think importantly, if we look at sub-Saharan Africa, much of the infectious diseases treatment is dependent on international aid. And we need to look and see how we can actually harness that to be more holistically in terms of primary health care. And then I think if we look at COVID-19, I think we need to leverage what we've what we've learned. Look at the role of um, telehealth, telementoring, develop these programs, particularly the Project ECHO programs, which have been run very effectively dealing with all of these diseases, but plus the non-communicable diseases, and really apply this in, this, in, in our setting here in sub-Saharan Africa, where we have very limited access to human resources and this problem of actually very sort of this brain drain where we're very competent individuals actually leave the country. And and we need to really be positive. We we have a lot to offer. We can actually harness what we have, but we need to use this effectively. And then I think one needs to remember that everything ultimately comes down to education, education of the public, education of healthcare workers, and education of our policy makers to realise that this is something that we need to address very actively. Professor Spearman, thank you very much for that comprehensive dive into your two series papers and and really for providing us a much needed overview of the NAFLD situation in sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you. Thank you. You can read the series on NAFLD in sub-Saharan Africa online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Professor Spearman and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.